Thank you all for sticking around through that commercial break. And now I turn the mics over to Ansel and CK for another episode of FedWatch. Q, thank you so much for the intro. Happy to be here. We're calling in from the Nashville Bitcoin Magazine studios and offices. Ansel, how you doing, my man? I'm doing awesome. Great 4th of July for me and my family. I hope you guys all had a great 4th of July. Back to it at a new time this week, but we'll be back to Tuesdays next week. Um, this is FedWatch, the macro show for Bitcoiners. We got a big lineup today. So uh, we're going to talk about commodities, the dollar, Credit Suisse news, BIS news. We have a Q&A section at the end where we solicited some questions from Twitter. So lots to get to. Christian, how are you doing, man? I'm doing good. I mean, it's it's so exciting these days in the markets and the world. Like, there's just so much happening. Whether uh, it's just chaos, whether it's war, whether it's protests, uh, it really does feel like a fourth turning, if you will. Uh, yeah. And I mean, just seeing Bitcoin interact with all of this, uh, it's fascinating. But also, uh, as someone who has a lot of skin in the Bitcoin game, uh, a little scary as well. Yeah, I keep waiting for a slow week where we can continue our series on like maybe some of the different institutions out there in global macro. We did the WEF. I would like to do the IMF and things like that. But uh, man, every week we just have a jam-packed show. And next Tuesday, so coming up this Tuesday, we're going to have Joe Carlisari on. And he is, it's going to be a great show. I can't wait. I'm excited because he has been saying we need to kill all the narratives in Bitcoin and come up with some new stuff. And I'm kind of right in that same boat. So that should be a really great show next week. Also, I did uh, throw a bonus episode of FedWatch out for podcast listeners. So check your podcast app. Uh, that is episode 101, where I went over fragmentation in Europe more in depth. Because when Christian asked that on the last live stream, I, I stumbled over my words. I didn't answer it correctly. So I wanted to research that and come up with a, uh, come out with a, a better episode. So I answered that more in depth check it out on your podcast app fedwatch bitcoin in any podcast app before we get into it we're going to be talking about what's happening globally i will be remiss if i don't talk about what bitcoin magazine is doing globally which is we're taking the bitcoin conference and we're going to europe uh, i think what we're seeing in amsterdam and we'll touch on this later in the show uh, is showing something that we've talked about a lot on this show which is that uh, europe is unstable and we've also seen that Europe, at least from a uh, big government and central banking perspective, is pretty hostile against Bitcoin. Uh, so I think that there's a need, one, for Bitcoiners. And there's a very strong European Bitcoin contingent out there to you know, show the world that Bitcoin is important and Bitcoin is important to Europe's future. And then two, you know, for us to continue to analyze what's happening in Europe, because uh, as all of us know, Europe for as you know all recent history has kind of been uh the heart of where conflict kind of breaks out and i think that's true yep. still today yeah great points i think um well it ties into the last episode when i talked about fragmentation in europe and how bitcoin is going to make it easier for countries to leave the euro now i wasn't talking at that time about the netherlands i was concentrating more like on italy and stuff but uh, as countries leave the euro which they eventually will you know, adopting Bitcoin is a will ease their transition to being more independent. So I think it's a nice tie in there. 
So um, again, to all the audio listeners, you can see the slides that we're going to share as we continue the show on YouTube and Rumble and everywhere else that we post our videos. But, um, you know, let's jump into what's happening in Fed and U.S. news. Uh, and again, I think we're going to we're going to start showing uh, a, a nice array of charts here. So Ansel, back to you. Yeah. So with the first uh, few charts here, I wanted to highlight that unlike Europe that is facing these really acute pressures right now, of course, with the, the protests and the energy prices, uh, the U.S. doesn't really have any of these acute worries that we see over there in Europe. The biggest thing I think over the last seven to 10 days has been a shift from inflation fears to recession fears. This is showing the GDP now forecast from the Atlanta Fed. And this came out last week and it kind of really wowed the market, it really shocked the market because it went all the way to negative 2%. This is annualized GDP for Q2. This would make the second quarter in a row of negative GDP, which is the technical, which is a technical recession. Of course, right when this came out, um, I saw a couple headlines saying, well, we need to revisit what we consider recession. Is it two years? Is it three, four? You know, how are we going to redefine what a recession is? And I think if that's funny, right? At first, at first hearing that that's funny, but also maybe we should, because we are in a, ever since 2008, we are in a different global economic climate, you know, with the great financial crisis and then Bitcoin coming along. Um, maybe we should revisit what we mean by recession. Or are we in a depression? You know, let, let's talk about this. Let's have this discussion and and see. But a lot of people and just, so, yeah, go. Well, what what are your thoughts here? Just tell me, tell me uh, if if you were to rethink these terms, ideas, concepts, uh, what makes the most sense to you? Well, I don't know. I mean, if you have a recession, two quarters of negative GDP growth, like three times in six years, and the other times you're only getting up to like one or two percent growth. To me, that sounds like a depression, right? It doesn't sound like there is really any recovery. It's just recession after recession. So uh, Emil Kalinowski on Eurodollar University, he calls this the silent depression right now. And I, I like that. I think we probably should roll into calling this a depression. So you're not saying revisit terms. You're saying you know, we needed to snap out of, of, of this, like we have gone way past the recession. And uh, this is now, a, you know, a depth of a long depression that's playing out. Yeah, but uh, if we just start with the conversation about, hey, let's uh, talk about what recession means and all this, I think you'll broaden that Overton window to start maybe talking about this is a depression instead of a recession. So yeah, I yeah, I think that another thing that people were talking about with the recession fears is, um, nominal versus real GDP. So for listeners out there, nominal is just measured in dollars. Um, so if the price prices go up, like CPI goes up, uh, you would expect, you know, an even GDP would actually be higher because, you know, all prices are rising. Um, and real GDP would be inflation adjusted or CPI adjusted. Some people I've seen out there say, oh, well, we still have 6% nominal growth right? Nominal growth when not adjusted for inflation, but it's 2% real GDP. So I think we're going to see some confusion or back and forth over those numbers. Um, but in the grand scheme of things right now, there is nothing acute 
like there is over there in Europe. So Europe is definitely kind of the center of global macro attention right now. Things coming up for the Fed, CPI next week on Wednesday. And we, were, we will be doing the live stream on Tuesday, so we won't be able to react to the CPI, but perhaps we can talk to Joe Carlos Ari a little bit about what he's seeing in CPI. And maybe then we need F to do a bonus show. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll do a bonus show that week. And then uh, FOMC is going to be meeting. That's the Fed Open Market Committee. They will be meeting on the 27th. Uh, important about this meeting is they do not have a meeting in August. So it's going to be a two-month break between July policy rate decision and September. Um, also, September is typically like the end of third quarter is when we see the most kind of stress in the system. And I don't know why that's probably a holdover from old futures and old type of the way the economy was around harvest season and, and stuff like that, that uh, they had this cyclicality. Also, the federal government's fiscal year ends in the third quarter. So that, and there's a lot of the economy has government contracts and stuff. So there's a, you know, the end of the third quarter is where we do see a lot of uh, stress build up in the system. So the FOMC doesn't have as many meetings leading up to that uh, and possible pivot or whatever they're going to do. Uh, so I think that's important. And that's all I have before we jump into the charts. Should we jump into the charts now? Yeah, no, let's go. Okay, so this is the dollar. And I think we were probably the only Bitcoin show that was talking about um, strong dollar for the last couple of years. And man, is it just ripping people's faces off right now. There's not much to glean from this chart other than the shape, in my opinion. And you can see it's just going parabolic. So we don't know where the top is, but I think that the top is getting closer in time because, you know, parabolic moves end in a blow off top usually. And whether it's a blow off top or just a consolidation uh, for the dollar, uh, I don't know. But I do think that the time is getting closer that we do see a top, a topping in the dollar. If you go to the next slide, Christian, just stop me whenever you want. Trying to, I just took some Fibonacci stuff for the last two big bull markets in the dollar. That Those are the ones that ended in uh, the dot-com bubble and then the one that started with the great financial crisis. And I know a lot of people don't like technical analysis and stuff, And but Fibonacci is, uh, it's a series, it's a number series. And how it works, you know, whether you think technical analysis works by self-fulfilling prophecy or maybe it's part of our like internal mammalian psyche of some sort. Uh, th these things, it's uncanny the way that these two cycles worked out. So if you go from um, the, if you measure out with Fibonacci's, the last two big bull markets, they both ended roughly around the 1618 line. And if you measure that out for this move, then it would take us to about 112 to 115 or so uh, on the DXY, uh, which I thought was Interesting, and it's just at least a point for us to be watching out for that that could be a point where the dollar kind of reverses. A lot of people don't like the DXY because it is a narrow measure, mostly against the euro and the yen and the pound. Uh, so I included a chart on the next slide about the broad trade-weighted dollar. This is 26 currencies weighted by how much the U.S. trades with them. And I think it was last updated like 2018 or 19. And you can see this is also approaching a top. Other than coronavirus, I think this is the highest that this trade-weighted dollar has ever been. So it's not just the DXY. It's also other 
measures of the dollar. If we go to the next chart, perhaps you don't like fiat to fiat comparisons. So I put gold in here and you can see it, it really broke down out of the support that it was kind of holding for about a year. And it is right now 10% below its 2011 high. So holding it for uh, you know, 11, 12 years and you're down 10% on that investment. That's, that's, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know why people buy gold anymore, but, um, this does show that it's not just the, you know, fiat to fiat. It's also gold to, um, gold to fiat. And interesting, if you see, look at the Euro to gold price, it is up year on uh, year to date by 6%. So, you know, that, that fits right in with the dollar not being really inflationary and that uh, it's gold is sinking versus the dollar, but rising versus the euro. Next slide. This is the last currency slide that I have, and this is Bitcoin. And you can see we're kind of bottoming out here right around those 2011 highs, the, the previous cycle high, and it looks to be breaking out. So we'll see. I think Bitcoin might be some sort of early uh, indicator for risk assets in general, because we do see possibly a bottoming in stocks, a bottoming in bonds and things of that nature. So um, this could be showing that the worst for at least U.S. financial markets is over for the time being. Christian, lots of charts there. Throwing it back to you. What do you think? Yeah, well, I, I want to say first and foremost, um, it's pretty clear that inflation is not exactly what people have made it out to be. And I think the fact that so many Bitcoiners have leaned against potentially incorrect narratives, it's going to hurt our reputation in the immediate term. And we're maybe even seeing a little bit of that where people are like, oh, Bitcoin was an inflation head show. This didn't happen. All oh, this didn't happen. The narratives were wrong. I know that Joe Collistar is going to come on to talk about that next week. Um, but when you see the dollar doing what it's doing and yet prices are still going up, there's a lot of reasons that that can happen. And, you know, we're having supply chain destructions. Like obviously if supply chains are not as efficient, things are going to get more scarce and more expensive uh, and it's going to get harder to make things. You know, things are very complicated to make, whether it's your car seat, whether it's a desk, whether it's a computer, whether, you know, all these things that we take for granted are really complex to make and require sophisticated supply chain so when those supply chains break down when trade stops that makes prices go up and that really has nothing to do with quote-unquote inflation we are the only bitcoin podcast macro pot maybe not the only macro pod podcast but one of the only bitcoin podcasts that has been calling it out just like that the entire time so i i do want to uh, call that out so i mean ansel obviously you are the the signal here i just kind of ask the dumb questions and, and give my two cents. But um, why do you think we've been able to kind of uh, look through the fog so effectively? Well, I just think it's, it's, you have to have the proper um, premise, you know, the proper assumptions that you base your macro forecasts on. And I think a lot of people have been saying that QE is inflationary and fiscal spending is inflationary and all this stuff. Uh, it's printing of money. Now it does make, prices go higher, but is it really printing of money? Since it wasn't printing of money, which has been my, my position is high prices just lead to recession, right? Because high prices mean that you can't um, afford so much. And so you pull back on your demand and that crashes the markets. So um, if you thought that 
QE and fiscal spending were inflationary, you got this wrong. That, that's that's my opinion. But you did you did uh, come up. Uh, I wrote a few things down when you were talking there is um, the markets. Yeah, they, they have inertia, so they can go on a little bit longer than you would expect in, in a certain direction because prices go up for many different reasons. So there's inertia. There's also undershooting and overshooting of certain things. But in the grand scheme of things, they will return to the mean of whatever the true macro situation is. So, um, yeah, those are my comments there. I do want to say that outside of just looking at DYDX gold, some of these other indicators with doing Bitcoin Amsterdam, we are selling tickets. We are pricing sponsorships in euros and we're almost one to one with the dollar. So it's really easy for us to do the math on that when we're doing our accounting. Um, and as far as I've known, the euro has always been like a dollar twenty cents, a dollar thirty cents. At one point, it was almost worth two dollars. Uh, so pretty astonishing, see seeing the currencies trade at parity when historically the euro has been uh, more expensive than dollars, just directly in exchange. Yeah, I think that's a psychological level too with the market. If uh, the euro can't hold parity and it drops to say ninety nine cents, oh man, it it could be an avalanche after that, but then I think it will overshoot and it will have to come back to the general trend, which is weaker Euro, but not that fast. It, it's not going to drop overnight. It's going to take a couple of years probably for it to move 25% and it shouldn't move 25% in a week. That would be a major uh, overshoot, but let's, let's move on to some of the other charts here. Keep on task here. So number eight, slide number eight is we're getting into commodities here. And this is cotton futures. There, there's been a lot of talk uh, recently about cotton because it did break down when people weren't really expecting it. It just kind of fell out of bed and it's down over 40% now. Uh, what I thought was interesting, though, about cotton, if you go to the next chart, is a zoomed out monthly chart. And you can see there's a very high similarity between the great financial crisis price action and recent price action. So you had a big sell-off at the acute phase of the recession or the um, financial crisis, then a big rebound and then a sell-off. And that's exactly what we're seeing again here. Um, and I think this demonstrates really well. My kind of theory is that we're just going to return to normal. These were just temporary shifts in the market and we're going to return to low growth, low inflation. Let's keep going. Number uh, slide 10 is wheat futures. And we wheat has returned to the pretty much the levels uh, where the Russia invasion started. Um, a lot of people were worried about this. I was worried about wheat, uh, the price of wheat and the price of fertilizer and all that stuff. But as it turns out, it looks like Russia is going to have a, a record wheat harvest this year. They also are able to uh, export some of that stuff, uh, wheat from the occupied areas in Ukraine, which is kind of causing some political turmoil right now. But, you know, you want to see that wheat get out to feed people around the world. So um, there is a lot of pressure that has been relieved in wheat. It's just returning to normal. Next slide is corn futures. This fell out of bed, very similar to cotton and a lot of people that I listened to in the macro space, they were going heavy long on corn. They thought this was the next thing because with oil prices going up, there would be more demand for ethanol. Um, also with the just uh, inflation 
that's people were talking about then you know they thought corn futures were going to go up uh but it looks like it had a nice little head and shoulders and just fell out of bed just like uh cotton did next slide is now we're getting into some of the metals this is copper and we did get a question about this um on twitter when i solicited questions for this episode so i'll just cover this here um copper is called Dr. Copper, because it has a PhD in macroeconomics, they say. Uh, most modern most modern things in the world have copper wiring, you know, copper plumbing, things like that. So it's a it is a modern metal. And if it turns over, then most likely we're going into recession of some sort. The demand for copper is falling. So if the demand for copper one of the base metals in our modern world, then that means that demand in general is falling. You can also zoom out on the next slide and you can see uh, I did the same thing as I did with the cotton futures. And that is just zoomed out to show the great financial crisis. And we had a big dip right in the acute phase of the great financial crisis, a big run up, and then many years of return to normal sell off. Uh, I think we're just going to see pretty much the exact same thing this time. Next slide is aluminum futures. And that is I think this is just a fantastic chart to show like technical analysis for a lot of people that don't like technical analysis. I mean, that we had a beautiful long legged doji at the top and it came down right now. It's sitting right on the highs from January, 2019. Uh, just a really beautiful chart in my opinion. And does show that, you know, it's kind of just this cycle you, everywhere you look, you see the Corona crash, big run up. And now you see a sell off uh, at the end. Next slide is oil. You have to make sure you're looking at a daily chart of oil. If you look at a weekly chart, you won't see the closes of these candles back in March. Uh, but yeah, the high was back on March 8th. And we actually had Luke Groman on the show at that time, uh, that exact day. And we were talking about oil. So that was uh, very interesting. We got to see what our calls were at the top. But oil tried to regain a new high, but couldn't quite do that. And if you go to the next slide, these are just my technical analysis lines that I've been following. So we had this uh, kind of, I don't know if you call it a flag or a channel and then a ascending wedge in there. And if, when it started falling out of that wedge, I was like, okay, well, it's definitely going to the bottom of the channel and it's probably going lower. And now we see it testing the bottom of the channel back, uh, you know, from April. So, um, very interesting what's going on with oil. I don't know if this is going to you know, continue selling off, but I do think over the next two to five years, we're going to see lower oil. Any higher high in oil is just going to be temporary uh, because demand is going to fall faster than supply. And, and so oil yeah, prices going down at the pump? Yes. I mean, um, I've seen it go down about 10% or so just in my local area over the last couple of weeks that that's not going to show up in CPI though, because, you know, I think it's mainly at the end of June, very beginning of July, even with the travel weekend, I, I saw multiple, multiple places where two weeks ago it was 479 by where, where I'm at in Florida and it was down to about 440. So, you know, that, that's a pretty significant move in gasoline prices. And I, I do expect that to continue because there's just not as much demand to push, you know, relative to supply. So in a recession, we're going to see falling demand and falling prices. That's that's I don't know why. Uh Oh, do we lose? Uh, do we lose Hansel? 
I think Ansel's completely right, though. Uh, demand has been destroyed, hence we are in a recession. And then obviously that is an opposing effect against the supply chain destru- destruction that is occurring. Seems pretty straightforward to me. Q, what do you want to what do you want to jump in with? No, I just wanted to, you know, the supply chain issue is just going to continue to get, I think, exacerbated and blamed for some time. Time will tell. Time will tell. So, so what do you do? What's practical to do? Let's say, you know, the viewers are listening, you know, they're trying to hodl Bitcoin, you know, (laughs) their dollars are getting, uh, are going up on the chart, but everything is still getting more expensive. Like, do people start hoarding like supplies? Like, I guess, what is a person to do? What are you thinking about? I mean, like, I, I actually joked about this over the weekend with some friends, but we got Sriracha at a dinner table. And I brought up that Sriracha manufacturers have said, like, there's probably going to be a shortage in the near future just because we don't have as many of the raw materials we need to create Sriracha. Uh, no, I'm not saying everyone go hoard your wealth in Sriracha, but, like, if you like Sriracha... Maybe buy a couple extra bottles the you next time you go to the grocery. You want to hear something funny? Yes. I, so I, I've been looking for sriracha at grocery stores, and they only have the knockoff ones at this point. So I just went on Amazon. I bought two giant big ones. Just was like, hey, this is this is at least twelve months' supply of sriracha. So uh, hold me over. There you go. Like it, it's happening in real time. I mean, I will always hold it against my dad that we did. The room I am in right now is my brother's room, and. I will always hold it against him that the day oil was negative, I called him and said, like, how do we just buy, get paid to hoard barrels of oil in this bedroom? Like, I think there was at least one, two, three, four, five, six, we can fit at least seven barrels of oil here. Just what I'm that, but how do you prepare? I mean, what a barrel is like, uh, how much is a barrel of oil these days? It's like 150 bucks a barrel. uh, It's actually, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I guess yesterday was. Crude oil came in at less than a hundred dollars a barrel. Um, I've been avoiding your question because the truth is like, it sucks to say it, but in this moment in time for a small sliver, cash is king. I'm not stopping my DCA. I'm not stopping stacking, but cash is king for, for the short and immediate term. Ansel, welcome back. Hey guys. Sorry about that. Uh, internet spotty, I guess. So, Ansel, you were talking about you were talking about how uh, supply chain destruction brings down, or sorry, not supply chain destruction, but uh, a recession yeah. brings down demand across the board, and then that has you know almost like a, an, an antithetical effect to uh, the tightening up that's happened because of supply chain destruction and the loss of efficiency there. Recessions just cause a, a pullback in demand. We we saw this kind of remember couple months ago, everyone was saying, oh, we're going to have to ration diesel on the East Coast. You haven't heard anything about that for the last two, uh, two months because guess what? Markets work. If prices go up, that, cr- that craters demand. You know, Price goes up, demand goes down, and we have a return to normal. So that's, um, that is just... Well, the funny we thing expect. is like, I feel like today people don't... Like, there's a lot of people, or maybe even the main zeitgeist, around like how the world works is like the base assumption that markets don't work that well. Yeah. Right. Market failure. There's no such thing as a market failure. That's what central planners want you to do. They, they, they are what you to believe that they're the market can't take care of itself. It's not a self balancing system. They need to balance it for you. Right. But 
the market is self-balancing even with their interventions. I mean, their interventions will cause problems. You know, it'll cause maybe uh, things to get dislocated more than they otherwise would, but eventually the markets will correct for the government intervention too. It's just, it just, it might take a little bit longer. So um, I, I don't know why free market people lost sight of that, but I mean, that's common sense for, for economics in my opinion. No, I mean, it, it makes sense to me as well, but uh, we do not have to dwell on this. We have a lot of other topics we need to jam on. Um, so Ansel, what is next? Well, can I continue going on the charts? I'll, I'll just go through these fast because I think they're pretty important, uh, especially when we're talking, especially when we're talking about Europe here coming soon. And that is slide 17 is the European natural gas futures. The blue line is the front month contract and the red line is July 2023. So a one year forward from today's date. As you can see, obviously the front month is more volatile, but I think where people are kind of shitting their pants right now in Europe is that red line. It has just taken off very recently. And that is saying that the market is expecting energy costs to be extremely high in Europe for over a year. So that's a, a worrisome from a business perspective. It's worrisome from an investment perspective, even a government perspective, a people perspective. That's, that's very worrisome. And I think that, that re this recent kind of um, vertical line in that red, the red chart is um, really worrisome for people. That's my last energy chart. Any, any comments on that one, Christian? Man, energy going up means everything goes up in terms of price, in terms of burden, in terms of difficulty to make. So uh, it's like a tax on uh, Europe. I mean, we saw that in Europe, uh, they redefined their energy mix um, to include yeah. nuclear as well as I don't know exactly how wide spanning the redefinition of oil or, or uh, carbon-based uh, fuels, fossil fuels, uh, it gets redefined as green in their new uh, definitions. But uh, they're scrambling to maintain the narrative while putting themselves in a more sustainable position. But right now, Europe is not looking good. They went deep on this, you know, uh, ESG-driven path and... They're effectively getting crushed by the first, you know, the first lick back. You know, they have they have no answers to uh, reality kind of instilling consequences on their actions. Yeah. And if you look at the U.S. natural gas futures at the Henry Hub futures, which I don't have a chart of, unfortunately, is um, it's coming back down. I mean, it's not even near historic highs for U.S. natural gas futures. So um you know, Europe is going to have different inflationary pressures, quote unquote, inflationary pressures than the U.S. is going to have. Uh, and that's very important when you are trying to predict what's going to be coming for for the euro. But let's get into real quick. I just have a couple more on the supply chain. So uh, number 18 here is the Baltic dry index. And this is just a weekly chart. It's showing, you know, it topped way back towards the end of 2021 and has been down ever since even the the Russia invasion stuff didn't really affect these bulk dry goods so that's uh, steel grains anything that doesn't ship in a 40-foot container would be kind of included with this Baltic dry index and things are down if you zoom this chart out by the way uh, 
the great financial crisis is like double this peak. So, I mean, it's not even close to how bad it was back then. And then my last shipping slide here is the next one. And this is the Freitos index, which we've talked about here on the show before. And this is just showing that even last week, once again, we had an acceleration in the decline of shipping costs or, or 40 foot container prices uh, from China to the U S. So, um, you know, supply chains are riding themselves because demand is crashing. So prices will come back in line with the norm. And that's all I have for this section, Christian. I got nothing to add. I got nothing to add. Um, should we just continue? All right. So let's, uh, what about Credit Suisse? Um, this was kind of uh, something that Dylan LeClaire brought to my attention on Twitter. And he was going to be writing a blog post for, or a newsletter post for the Bitcoin Magazine Pro. I don't know if that has come out yet, but uh, this was a very interesting chart from Dylan showing um, the credit default swaps for Credit Suisse, big bank over there in Europe. And uh, this is their default risk. So as this goes up, it means that there's more risk of the bank defaulting on, on their loans. Um, Credit Suisse has been embroiled with scandal over the last couple of years. Last year, they had this Archigos thing i don't i don't remember the specifics of that but it was a pretty big deal multi tens of billions of dollars dollars in some scandal then they they posted a loss in 2021 of 2.2 billion um just earlier this year they were embroiled in a 90 billion dollar scandal of you know uh, funding drug dealers and sex child trafficking rings and and things like that so there's a very big uh, ethics scandal from Credit Suisse earlier this year. They also had 1.7 billion exposure to Russia, which was, uh, the, I think, the biggest in Europe. Uh, and yeah, so their credit default swaps are blowing up. But I thought it was interesting because then someone replied to this. And if you go to the next slide, all the banks, all the banks, their credit default swaps are rising. So this shows that there is definitely, definitely some stress in the global financial system. If you want to say we're not entering recession, like, like Powell is trying to say up there in front of Congress that recession is not his base case. I mean, just look at any of the charts that we just produced right here and demand is falling. Uh, stress in the system is increasing and yeah, recession is definitely here. So th that's what I have here for Christian. Um, what you got. <laughs> and you think even depression is here, not just recession. This is this is one of multiple recessions back to back to back. Yeah, well, like I was saying, um, return to normal. I think normal is normal right now is just a, a depression, uh, low growth, low inflation. Um, now, people might say, hey, well, that's not good for Bitcoin. How does Bitcoin succeed in that right. environment? Right. But uh, Bitcoin has succeeded in the environment since the great financial crisis just fine. And so it, Bitcoin's kind of the way Bitcoin works is that it is um, it works in deflation and inflation, just like all sound money does. And as low growth and low inflation wrecks the world, then Bitcoin offers green shoots. Bitcoin offers a different way. It offers a way for people to get control back from maybe the globalists or the people that they don't want in charge anymore of the global economy. They can take that power back with Bitcoin. So um, that would be my answer to People that don't think Bitcoin will do well in a depression, I think, why not? Of course it will. Speaking of Bitcoin and speaking of Europe, 
or I guess we're going to be talking about Europe in a second, the BIS in a interesting move creates room for banks to hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Uh, Ansel, do you want to go to the details on this news? Yeah, um, this will be real quick. Uh, it, it's kind of the bottom line here is that they they made it so that you could hold up to 1% Bitcoin on a bank's balance sheet. Pretty simple news, uh, but a lot of people took this as super positive and a few people took it as maybe not so positive. So I think there's kind of um, a positive or negative way to take this. So yes, the BIS has now said that Bitcoin has a place on banks' balance sheets, and that is huge, huge news. But it's it also said that you can't have more than 1% because it's too damn risky. So uh, that is kind of a positive and a negative to this story. And I just wanted to put my two cents on that. Did you see this headline? And what was your your reaction? I did see the headline. Um, I thought it was interesting. And I, I honestly think that central bankers, governments right now, they're kind of in this position, this weird quagmire that a lot of corporations found themselves in, in 2017, 2016, 2017, 2018, where they're saying Bitcoin is not the signal, it's blockchain. Now they're saying Bitcoin is not the signal, it's CBDCs, but they're also inherently almost saying that there is something here, right? It's difficult to say that, hey, this thing that was created by Bitcoin blockchain it is not the signal and also say that, hey, this thing that was created by Bitcoin digital currency is not the signal, but look at my version of that. I have a better one. So I think that they're in this quagmire and uh, it's it's pushing them closer and closer into like looking into Bitcoin itself and seeing that even as they oppose it outwardly, there are still benefits for them also getting into the adoption game too. So um it's it's really interesting we again we saw it happen with corporations they're saying no bitcoin's not it it's blockchain and now corporations have bitcoin treasury strategies and conferences about that and it's a meme that's growing um and i think that that's going to be the same with uh commercial banks uh state-run banks even central banks very soon absolutely i don't have much to add to that other than you know, the, the government is, they've been looking for a reason to ban Bitcoin for a long time. And they couldn't do it because if you ban Bitcoin, you kind of acknowledge that it's a threat, right? So you, you actually give it a vote of confidence if you ban it. But now these DeFi folks, these NFT folks and all these Ponzi scheme uh, promoters out there, they have given the governments a reason to clamp down. And so Maybe they'll use it, but there are signs of there are bright signs out there on the horizon as well, like this, uh, the Biden executive order to request comment on uh, Bitcoin and, and CBDCs and things. Uh, Bitcoin Policy Institute uh, put in some comments and it our was boys awesome. At the Bitcoin it Policy was awesome. Institute. Great, great yeah. squad there. Yeah, that's Matthew Pines over there, right? Matthew Pines is one of the fellows. It's actually David Zell and uh, and oh, Grant, yeah. Uh, yeah, Grant McCarty. Um, they're both Nashville-based. Hang out with them. I actually saw David Zell earlier today, and uh, they've been absolutely, absolutely crushing it. Um, yep. And yeah, they're they're a group of fellows. I think they have ten plus fellows, including Matthew Pines. Absolutely fantastic. And 
they're doing what no other policy group <laughs> has been able to muster up thus far. They've all, you know, you know, confused Bitcoin with other things. And finally, someone is doing a good job. So cheers to them. Cheers to them. Absolutely. And it's just, you know, we need voices like that in this discussion when they try to demonize Bitcoin or lump Bitcoin in with these things as the regulators will come. Um, you know, we need we need those voices. That's all Ansel, I have. Can on you the talk D about what you PIS. liked about that? I think we should talk about the the report they did. Can you talk about what you liked about that report and, um, you know, how it's different and breath of fresh air, if you will? Yeah, let me bring up some commentaries that I wrote for my um, I wrote this for my community over there. I have that tel new Telegram channel. So I wrote this out. Um, yeah, I think that the uh, executive order will create a huge learning opportunity for many people. Most people were negative on it at first, right? They didn't like that the, this seemed like regulation uh, or that the regulation was coming, uh, but it probably will turn out positively if we have people like the Bitcoin Policy Institute writing these things in there. They talked about the benefits of mining, how they think it's actually going to help renewables. They talked about um, pretty much all the arguments that we've made over the years about Bitcoin. It's, it's but in a professional way. You know, this is a very... Uh, detailed argument that they laid out just like Matthew Pines when we interviewed him about his national uh, Bitcoin and what is it strategic uh, interests uh, of the US hit that article that he wrote there it was pretty much all the arguments that we've made in Bitcoin over the last eight ten years but presented in a very uh, professional manner and that was exactly what the Bitcoin Policy Institute did here in response to the executive order no, yeah, I mean, again, uh, huge fans and uh, big shout out to them. I think more is coming from them. So keep an eye out. Make sure to go follow them uh, on Twitter and go check out uh, btcpolicy.org. Uh, check out that report and all the other reports they put out there. Um, really putting a great step and a great foot forward for Bitcoin in terms of answering policymakers' questions and hopefully. Um, helping minimize the friction that comes from policymakers. Um, I know we are rubbing up against time uh, and we have a little bit more to talk about, especially regarding Europe. Yeah, we can cover the recent, the recent protests if you want to. Um, the stuff going on with, in Netherlands with the farmer protests looks to be spreading now to Poland and Italy. I mean, it's absolutely shutting down the Dutch economy almost like... 100% of the economy is being shut down. It's, it's pretty incredible to see. And this could lead to more fragmentation pressures in Europe, which I did talk about on the last episode of FedWatch. So uh, that, that's all I have for this. I didn't have any specifics. Uh, do you want to give this, this one some color? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to to see to like get a good understanding of what's happening on the ground. One, there's a lot of bad information. Two, there's a lot of exaggerating what's actually happening. Um, and then three, it's just not being covered uh, by by many. Um, there's very light coverage, similar to what we've been seeing uh, or what we saw with Canada, except that the people on the ground are making a whole lot more noise then. Um, but generally speaking, from like I'm dealing with a lot of Dutch people because we're putting on Bitcoin Amsterdam, uh, and it seems like people are actually pretty divided about this uh, in in the Netherlands, uh, and it does seem like. Uh, you know, some of the images of an empty grocery store are a little bit overblown. But with that being said, 
like as time passes, this will continue to have a greater effect. Uh, in Canada, you know, when they started blockading and things like that, it had a huge effect. Uh, and the effect was so big that Trudeau had to uh, respond with force. So it's going to be very interesting to see things playing out. And we're seeing other European nations where uh, farmers and other uh, productive uh, producers are getting hit with, you know, very onerous regulations starting to stand up and do the same thing as well. So it's very interesting to see, you know, uh, people who have heavy equipment using them to protest and how uh, there is power and scale in doing that uh, in a nonviolent way. Uh, and seeing that movement kind of spread, uh, especially again in Europe, a place that we've been calling out as a powder keg for a while. Yeah, and I also heard that Canada, they're trying to do the same sort of um, agriculture regulations over in Canada, and that could spark another Canadian uh, Freedom Day or whatever they called it, a Freedom Convoy. Uh, that that would be interesting if, if it came back to Canada and spread around Europe. That'd be pretty crazy. Wow, it is uh, it is crazy just seeing seeing all of this play out. Um, again, it's scary. It's exciting. I hope that uh, the fallout kind of brings us back to a better path uh, for the world. Um, but it is it's scary to try to make it through that. Yeah, I do have one more here comment uh, that I did write in the, the outline that I forgot I put in here is that uh, some people say that the government instability affects risks and that will affect the economy, um, you know, going forward that the, the, the um, let's see, government instability. So it is the central planners, the instability of the central planners and the, the central planners not being on the same page and not showing enough unity and enough for, forthrightness to get the job done at the government level is what actually brings risk to the markets. Uh, and that's, I think, shown over there in Europe right now. But in fact, it's the other way around, that the economies crashing bring the instability to the political sphere. Um, so like you, I was trying to tie this into what you were uh, asked earlier about... Um, uh, I don't know. I was saying something earlier now. I can't remember what it was. Um, and oh, about central planning and about the balancing of the markets and how everything, there is no market failure here. Well, the, you know, these people, the globalists over there in Europe that are doing these agrarian, uh, the agricultural policies and stuff, they are thinking that it's a, a failure of government that's causing a recession when really it's the recession that's causing the failure in government. So they, they always have it flipped around and they put the central planner at the center instead of the central planner is always, you know, a result. The, the central, the failure of central planning is always the result of the economy. So I don't know if I tied those things together. Wow. Th that's, that's profound, Ansel. You know, you're effectively saying that, you know, from an economic perspective, the majority of economists are in the, the equivalent of the flat earth paradigm where, you know, well, the central planner, the central bank is at the center of it. You know, even like the the legend and lore and the myth of the Fed is in that paradigm. But the reality is, is that there's actually a sun, quote unquote, the free market, and we're all orbiting around it. And maybe that's the 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 more true paradigm. I don't know if that that makes sense to the listeners or if I went off 
uh, you know, the deep end on that one. But um, Ansel, I know we have some questions that you solicited a Q&A on Twitter. We can yep. jump into that. Um, and then maybe we can riff on Bitcoin price. I mean, obviously, uh, we went over a chart earlier, but uh, <laughs> price is in a dubious position still here at 20K. Yeah. Who knows if we can go up? Uh, there's a lot of negatives that come with uh, long consolidation as well as potential positives with the price. Yeah. So do you have the, the Twitter questions pulled up? You want to fire away? Yeah, let's do it. So you you picked out about five questions from Twitter. So I'm just going to hit on them. Uh, question number one is from uh, Nick Coletta. Can you explain the importance of the 10 and 2 in pleb terms? Okay, so the 10 and 2, he's talking about the yield curve, and you probably hear that from a lot of macro people. Uh, that is just the interest rate on the two-year treasury versus the interest rate on the 10-year treasury. And when the two-year treasury goes above the 10-year treasury, it doesn't make sense, right? Why would it cost more to borrow money for a shorter period of time than a longer period of time? And um, so it tells you when, when, these, when that thing happens, when the 2 goes above the 10, that tells you that something is wrong. The market is telling you something is wrong. And that's generally always been in front of a recession. I think it's something like six to 18 months from the time of the inversion like that, that we have recession. So that's just the importance of the yield curve. It tells you that the market participants that, and the treasury market is the largest, most sophisticated market in the world. It's telling you that something's wrong. Um, so that's the importance of the yield curve. All right. Next question. What is the Fed's role in a post-Bitcoin adoption America? Okay. Um, it will be similar to the, the role of the Fed on the gold standard. I mean, they don't really have a role today. Like we say on the show that they are followers. Uh, their main job is influence. They're influencing the market. Uh, through the Fed mythology and that they print money and, and all this stuff, but they inevitably follow what the market is doing. So what will their influence be after, um, after Bitcoin adoption? The actual influence will be the same, which is very little, um, but their role will probably look a lot like the gold standard. If eventually maybe the Fed will go away, which would be great, but at the beginning, it'll probably just look a lot like the gold standard. They'll be less important in our daily lives and in the financial press. Ansel, this is not from Twitter. This is actually a live question from YouTube. Okay. Is Jimmy Song joining FedWatch someday? I don't know. Do you want to invite Jimmy oh, Song yeah. on? We should. We should. I've talked to him in the past back on uh, World Crypto Network Day. So, um, yeah, that would OG. be great to have him on. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, Ansel, I'll leave it up to you to uh, to put out an invite to Jimmy Song. Jimmy's on Bitcoin Magazine Live a lot. I think he you know he came on almost every Friday for several weeks in a row. Um, so we got lots of Jimmy Song here at Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, let's get back to the Twitter questions. I know we have a couple more here, and then we can hit on some riffing on Bitcoin price before we close it out. Okay, some hopium. Give the folks some hopium around how, why it is the way that the, oh my gosh, I am totally blowing this. Um, but let's talk about the WF. Let's talk about globalists. Give the people some hopium why they will fail. Um, yeah, well, I see the globalists failing all over the place. I'm not as um, 
maybe aggressive in my rhetoric as Tom Luongo, the great Tom Luongo. But um, I, I see things very similarly that the globalists are every step they take forward, they get one step back. I also see, or sorry, every step forward they take, they take two steps back. And um, I also see that they are acting very defensively recently. So a lot of their um, policies, a lot of their things like this fragmentation and Christine Lagarde talking about, oh, we're going to make a new monetary policy tool uh, that is going to solve everybody's worries about the, the Euro. Um, it's, it's defense, it's defense. They're playing defense instead of offense. And so I see that happening a lot with globalists and yeah, I think that they will just inevitably lose out to the rise of populism. All right. So what do you mean by deflationary environment? What is like the monetary perspective around this? Can you uh, expand a little bit about describing what you mean about a deflationary environment? Okay, so deflationary environment that um, you can't escape the end of a credit cycle. The end of a credit cycle is deflation. That credit disappears. It gets defaulted on and money supply shrinks. Even Mises said you can't escape the end of a credit cycle, right? And so that is what we have here. We just have one big global credit cycle uh, that's lasted, in my opinion, you know, Ray Dalio says for last 80 years. And I think it's about that maybe 60 years or something in that neighborhood where the, this global credit bubble has been building. And now we're deflating this global credit bubble. They can kick the can down the road, right? They can do QE, which is just balance sheet manipulation. It's not really printing money. It's just manipulating the bank's balance sheets, hoping that they will print money in the process of making loans. Um, but you can't get rid of this debt problem. You can't get out of a debt problem by adding more debt. So the, the end of this is deflationary, and that is the pressure. The pressure is in the deflationary direction. That's why all these crises are not like uh, hyperinflationary crises, at least in the United States in the dollar. All the crises are flash crashes, you know, where the, the credit markets freeze and there's a possibility that everything crashes to zero. That, that's a deflationary environment that we're in, and they try to kick the can down the road, uh, but they will never be able to escape the ultimate end, which is not inflation, is deflation. Bum, bum, bum. All right. Is the strong door, is the strong, we have three more minutes here. Is the strong dollar okay, trans, okay. transitory? How does copper play a role in macro? What are the power dynamics in international trade now that China is opening up its ports and flooding the world with inventory? Is any of this deflationary? Ansel, uh, a lot of questions here. Yeah, yeah. You got well, we covered minutes. some of those. Go. We, we <laughs> yeah, we did cover some of this. Yeah, we covered some of those with the, the copper. Um, and the dollar, I think the dollar will continue to strengthen, but it won't be a straight line, obviously. I think we'll see a stair step upwards, kind of what we've seen since the great financial crisis. That, that What's been happening in the first 10 years after the great financial crisis is what we're going to return back to. Um, now, as far as China goes and reopening their ports, a lot of that traffic actually did get rerouted to other ports in China away from Shanghai when they had their whole lockdowns. So the backup is not as bad as what we at first thought. Um, the U.S. customer or the U.S. purchasing manager or whatever you want to call them, it, they're just making fewer orders from China right now, too. So even if they do you know, completely open up over there in China, um, 
it won't be a flood of new orders to the U.S. So overall, I think it is a symptom of deflation and not necessarily a cause. All right, Ansel, we're at time. Uh, let's just uh, have one last word about Bitcoin price. Yeah, yeah. Uh, things are ripping right now. I think we just passed 21,000, but oh, nice. um, I am, I'll, I'll see, you know, it seems like miners are selling the rip, if you will. And if that trend mm. continues, uh, I think that the bear market continues. But as soon as sentiment changes and people are not willing to sell the rip and actually the rip causes FOMO, uh, then I think we can we can reevaluate. But with that, you can follow me at CK underscore Snarks on Twitter. This is FedWatch. We drop episodes at least once a week. If not, uh, Antel drop in a couple more. Check us out on FedWatch on your favorite podcast player. Visit us on YouTube. We're also there and on Rumble. Uh, Antel, where can people find more about you? At and Twitter, bitcoinandmarkets.com is my website. I have a Discord community and a Telegram channel. Um, doing my own podcast over there as well still. So lots of stuff going on. Oh, and a free Friday newsletter. So sign up on bitcoinandmarkets.com. Ansel is my favorite. So that's why we do this podcast. Uh, I've been listening to this stuff forever, and now I'm honored to be his co-host for FedWatch. Q, Jesus. thank you for having us. Hop on over to Twitter at about 2 p.m. Pacific time, 5 p.m. Eastern, and any and all of your questions about Bitcoin Amsterdam will be answered there. Uh, and as a gentle, subtle reminder, go buy your tickets to Bitcoin Amsterdam. So like, you know, you know the drill. P, myself, Chris, can't have our jobs if you don't buy the ticket to Bitcoin Amsterdam. That's kind of how this whole shtick works. So buy those tickets.